the way that people understand and interact with church. And I mean, we've been seeing numbers, Barna has been documenting it, you know, millions of people leaving the church, traditional church every year, not because they're losing their faith, but because they're they're trying to survive in their faith, kind of outside the four walls. Unfortunately, I think the American church has created this institutional empire that most part is operating outside of of what Christianity is called to be. I think as those things begin to erode, we're going to start seeing, I think, more honest conversations. Uh, I'm hoping to see a shift of Christianity away from a shame culture, away from law-based I'm shifting more towards a true understanding of grace, of a true understanding that if we really say God is in control, whatever your view of that is, do we give people the grace to be where they're at in their journey? Or do we feel the need to constantly have to correct and align someone with you know our theological viewpoints? Masterpieces start with the first brushstroke. And I know I'm still growing But it has no effect on the life That it has to be instant And I have to be perfect now In the waiting I will find Hey, how are we doing? As always, I'm Seth. You're in for a good episode today. So a lot of the people that I end up interviewing on this show are uh, theological based, which is fantastic. And today's episode is no different, really. But it's rare that I talk with someone that actually puts together the meat of content in a way that they see both sides. Someone that is both trained theologically, but also knows the ins and outs of podcasting and publishing and art and graphics design. And all of those small facets really change a person. I think, you know, an artist views the world in a different way. A theologian views the world in a different way. A minister, a preacher, a counselor, a producer, they all hear things differently and they all see things differently. And that's what I like about this conversation. Over the magic of the internet, I sat down with Rafael Palindo, who is the, I guess, founder is a good word, of Choir Publishing, who has published some books about God and Jesus and some of those books have become some of my favorite books and some of my favorite episodes of these shows, you know. So those authors would be like, you know, Keith Giles and Mark Karras and Brandon Andrus. And those three authors have written some books that really have impacted my faith and my life tremendously. And so I am personally thankful for those. And I'm thankful for institutions like Choir that would allow those books to exist in a world that prior maybe they wouldn't have. So we talk about, you know, history of evangelicalism, the future of the church, pillars of the faith and what those look like going forward. I mean, the, the, the conversation goes in a lot of places, but what I think you'll hear and what I trust that you'll hear is a genuineness and a love in Raphael's voice and in his concern and in his purpose and in his mission as he sees it. And so let me know what you think. Comment on the show, rate and review the show. Just let me know. Um, Facebook it, whatever you need to do. But really look forward to hearing your feedback on this one. Here we go. Roll the tape. Raphael Polindo. Raphael Polindo, dude, I'm excited to have you on to the show. Welcome to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Um, and I'll be honest, and we referenced this a minute ago, 
I don't usually talk with people that also produce a podcast. And so in the back of my mind, I'm like, don't screw up because you're going to get, <laughs> you're going to be graded on a scale of, you know, one to a hundred. But... Yeah. What's funny, what's going on in my head is don't screw up because I don't want to cause you to have to edit additional because <laughs> <laughs> I, I know the pain of how much time and energy it takes after the fact. to. One of the worst ones one of the worst ones I've had to edit, and it's recent, so it's actually this Monday's, and I don't know when this released, and so for reference for everybody, it was uh, whatever the Monday is of the last Monday that you could still be in March, whatever that Monday is. Okay. With um, Shane Claiborne and Mike Martin. So yeah. his Skype kept doing one of these, but it was actually uh, just splitting apart the syllables. I wasn't clipping anything. So I had weird. to find each and every single piece and I'd have to put no it right way. back together. Uh, it took uh, me hours, but I was like, you know what? It's worth it because if not, it sounds like a bad connection and it's not. It's just that Skype sucks as a program. Yeah. And so I I had to, I was like, I can make this work. And for the most part, <laughs> I only miss like two. As I listen back, I'm like, yeah, I don't think anybody will even know, but I know, <laughs> I know. Yeah, um, and the Patreon well, supporters know because they get an unedited version. But outside uh, okay. of that, yeah, nobody else knows. So well, except except for now, the secret's out. So yeah, Michael, get a better internet if you're listening. <laughs> fix it, <laughs> fix it. But welcome to the show. I'm excited that you're on. I'm excited. I'm excited to chat with you. So I always like to start the same way. Who are you? Why are you what you are? And kind of what you know, specifically just to match the tempo of the show, what is the theology in you that has made you, you know, from maybe your youth to now, like what, what is yeah. making you, you? Wow. You just come right out the gate with the, with the good stuff. Everybody always says that like, okay, we're okay. <laughs> we're doing it. <laughs> no small talk. No, uh, <laughs> no easing into it. Let's just, let's just get right. Yeah. In. That's not edited out. I just, I just go <laughs> right in. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Uh, well, your first question, who are you? I always, I always laugh because I think of that scene from um, what was that movie? Anger Management, and Jack Nicholson is pressing him, and he's like, "No, who are you?" And he's like, "Well, I'm this nut." He's like, "No, no, don't tell me what you do. Tell me who you are." <laughs> it's just like <laughs> started going down this existential wormhole. But uh, yeah, I'd say um, let's see. I'm a I'm a husband and a father. New new father. Uh, my son's four months old now. Mm. Um, publisher. Uh, so my wife and I started choir publishing a few years ago. Uh, I'm a graphic designer by trade coming up on 20 years. Um, I am a follower of Christ, uh, was raised in the church. And I guess this kind of dovetails into, uh, into the next question, but, uh, so from a very young age, I was, I was raised in the church. I think at like four years old, they would pull me on stage to recite Bible verses in front of the crowd and, you know, people would clap and cheer and stuff. And so I, I kind of had this fearlessness about me, um, was trying to, you know, evangelize to little kids at birthday parties and stuff like that. So that's the environment I grew up in, um, around, went to a Christian, um, elementary in junior high Around junior high, we started attending a very small uh, startup church where it's the type of place where you wear multiple hats. And so I was uh, the youth pastor. I was on the worship team. Um, and then I was also filling in for the, the pastor as he would go on uh, speaking engagements and stuff. So just very immersed in church culture, in Christianity, um, from a fairly conservative evangelical background. Um, and so that was kind of like my, my upbringing. Um, and then, uh, several years after that, I read, uh, a red book called pagan Christianity. And that book basically destroyed 
me um, in all the best ways. So from that point forward, a lot of my theology uh, came into question and I started digging into, you know, questions that were coming up in my mind, uh, deconstructing uh, quite a bit, reconstructing. And so that was kind of what kicked off that whole process. You said that's called pagan Christianity? Yeah, Pagan Christianity by Frank Viola. So at the time, I so I had gone to Biola University. I was a Bible uh, minor uh, with a major in art and was going to a mega church at the time. Was not dissatisfied with the church, was not you know frustrated by any means, was pretty content. And I read this book, and basically the premise is what we do and consider um, normative in modern church uh, doesn't really have a basis in the New Testament. And mm. they kind of trace historically these practices that we take for granted as church and kind of show where their origins came from. And it's not necessarily that just because something has a pagan origin is bad. Right. But the point they were making was that the byproduct of these practices that we've inherited um, have actually distracted us from the vision and calling and mission of the church. Hmm. And so I, I had read this book just out of curiosity and it just wrecked me. Um, and so I was just left kind of feeling like the rug was pulled out from under me. It was the first time that my worldview was like significantly shaken. Mm. And from that point forward, I spent um, researching and reading and digging into, uh, you know, what is church? Um, how does the New Testament vision it? And that was really the, I like to say it was the the first thread of the sweater that mm. kind of got tugged. <laughs> and, uh, and once that started unraveling, you know, there was a few other doctrines and, and ways of understanding theology that started to quickly unravel after that. And so, um, you know, that, that kind of led to this deep deconstruction yeah. and reconstruction. If it was a sweater, what is it today? Oh, it's like a, like a bikini speed. <laughs> <laughs> is, is the goal to re-knit something or just screw it? Leave the, leave the yarn on the floor. Yeah, no, no. I, I'm definitely not a fan of deconstruction just for the sake of burning it all down. Um, <laughs> And, it, and I know a lot of people have a difficult time with that term deconstruction, mm-hmm. um, but I, I really see it as uh, relating to, I think it was, was it Michelangelo, his quote about sculpting David, where he, you know, all he did was chip away everything that was not David. Mm. And so for me, it's really, it, I'm still very much centered on, on Christ and understanding not just uh, Jesus as the Christ, but even just the cosmic um, all-encompassing understanding of the Christ. And so anything that I come across that I feel begins to, you know, uh, distract or cover up or reduce the Christ, um, those are the things that I want to deconstruct and kind of chip away so that hopefully at the end I have a more full, more vibrant, a larger, um, more freedom-producing vision of, of who Christ is. Yeah. I'm curious. So I didn't know that you did graphics design. But to be fair, I on purpose did as much research as I needed to know that I knew enough that I needed to, to start a conversation with you. Okay. Um, almost like my friend told me in the car, like we're having beers with Ralph. And so yeah. here's three things about him. Have a beer and just get into it. So yeah. Um, I, so you didn't, you didn't Facebook stock me is what you said. No, that's always weird. <laughs> um, I'll go back though now and I'll go back like five years on purpose and I'll just like like one picture from awesome. 2013 yeah. just one picture yeah. and then you'll but know you to, you'll know it's me you to, yeah you have to do it like three in the morning though so it's like just, what is going on <laughs> well well to be fair we're like three hours apart so i'm not getting up at six in the morning to do that <laughs> i'm not i'm just not although i get up at six anyway yeah i'll do uh, that hey, naturally yeah um well six my time i gotta go to work so i work at a bank oh, okay. so yeah we i gotta get there uh, yeah, at like yeah. eight so um yeah. 
Yeah. But I went to school at Liberty uh, for graphics design and then hated it. Like literally got out of school and was like, hmm, no, I hated it. The design or the school? Uh, Well, at the time I (laughs) love, I still, I I got that question the other day because I rag on Liberty a lot. Yeah. But I feel like I'm allowed to because I spent a lot of money there. And so... What you know? This is this is my house. If I want to rip the wall down, I will. Like <laughs> I spent a lot of money here. I have a degree from here. I'm an uh-huh. alumni, and so yeah, you can gripe all you want about Jerry Jr. or whatever. But I met his dad. We had dinner a few times. I met his wife, and mm. I know Jonathan Falwell well as well. Uh, Jonathan Falwell decent enough, and and so I can gripe if I want to gripe. I earned that right. Yeah, yeah. But no, so I don't hate the school. I do. Don't I don't agree with its theology anymore. But I'm mm. thankful that I went there. Like I don't know that yeah. I would be where I'm at now, either career-wise or religious-wise, had I not gone there. And some of my best friends came out of Liberty. But no, graphics design I hated because I get so angry that people don't know what they want. If that makes sense, uh, yeah. Like yeah. like I'll make this and and show it to you, and you're like, I don't like it. Well, what do yep. you mean like? I just don't like it. I just yep. I don't like it. So for me, my deconstruction kind of started when I had kids. Like it changed mm. the way that I emotionally viewed things. Mm-hmm. And I guess to play off that Michelangelo metaphor, uh, I imagine those emotions were always there. I just never really had to use them because it was yeah. just me and my wife or me and my friends. And it's, you know, it's just, it's a different set of emotions. For sure. And I could ask you that easily and I probably will, but I'm curious how as an artist, how how has your art either helped you see God a different way or changed mm. the way that you currently see? That's a good question. Um, so I think I think for me, it's the excitement whenever I realize that there's more creativity, um, not only in just the world around us, but even in the way that we interpret scripture and the way that we interact with God. I think that that for me makes me come alive. And so recognizing, again, kind of this more expansive, all-encompassing view of the Christ, where suddenly you're able to go out in the world and interact and be looking for manifestations all around you. And it just kind of opens up the world into a way that uh, allows you to enjoy it and appreciate it. And you almost become a treasure seeker because when you realize there's, you know, there's Christ in everyone, um, that the incarnation is just totally saturated. You know, Richard Rohr's new book, Mm -hmm. I haven't read it yet, but I know this is a lot of what he talks about that. I think it just makes life more, more vibrant and more exciting. So someone with a creative background, I think that excites me to be able to try and look and see and discover him in different ways beyond kind of what you're handed in just traditional conservative Christianity. I um, I haven't read the book either, but my pastor had said, hey, he has a podcast out. It's like 14 or 12 episodes. Yeah. And he's like, just listen to the podcast. It's basically the book with like director commentary. I was like, really? okay. So I fired it up maybe 20 minutes ago. Like I was literally finishing the dishes before I came downstairs to talk yeah. to you. And the first question that these people ask Richard is, how do you explain the concept of Christ to your kids? Like, mm. like, at, at like, you know, when you're, when you're, when your child is like five years from now. And I was yeah, like, yeah. that's such a good question. <laughs> that so is. I'm stealing it. I'm stealing it. <laughs> so if you're listening, I'm sorry, but it's a great question. It's not my fault, but I'm stealing it. Um, I tend to not listen to other religious podcasts specifically for this purpose, but I was like, you know what? No, yeah. I want to listen. Well, you do listen to Heretic Happy Hour though. Right? I do. Um, <laughs> I want to, yeah. So you produce that, right? So you produce that one and yeah. like 27 other podcasts. It's not 27, <laughs> well, we, but it's quite a few, right? Uh, so we, so for sure, Heretic Happy Hour, and then we just launched Bookish, 
Um, mm-hmm. And then we do have about three in the works, but they haven't launched yet. So technically just two for right now. And you produce them all? Uh, yes. Yeah. So I know how much work this show is. My question would be why? Like why not <laughs> subcontract that out in some yeah. way, shape, or form? Well, so so to be fair, uh, two of the ones that will be coming out, um, they are recorded and edited by um, by the hosts, and then they'll send it to me for final kind of mastering. Um, so when I say produced, it's kind of a loose term, just more of overseeing the process, um, giving feedback, suggestions, kind of helping steer, navigate, gotcha. be a, a partner, so to speak. Yeah. But as far as like the nitty gritty hands on, um, Heretic Happy Hour is pretty much the one that takes up my time. Yeah. Um, and it's because just the nature of the show, there's a lot of, you know, bits and, and, uh, audio, um, yeah. samples. And things yeah. Like well, when you have that many people, but uh, it's always hard. Like I know the the multiple interviewees. When I have those ones, I like those episodes, but they're way more work, way more oh, yeah. work. Yeah. One thing I love about that show is they know how to disagree without apparently wanting to kill each other, <laughs> which is honestly, I mean, it's funny, but it's rare. Like, yeah, it's just yeah. it's just rare, specifically for Christians to to not just not just you know unthread the the sweater, but just mm-hmm. literally light it on fire. And yeah. then pee on the ashes. <laughs> but that product is like a byproduct of, of your publishing. And so I wanted to talk a bit about that. Why two decades into graphics design would someone go, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to create content both in audio formats and in print format. Mm-hmm. That makes no sense to me. Like I don't understand why someone would want to do that. Yeah. Uh, well, to be honest, it doesn't make sense, but <laughs> <laughs> not even to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it was, I, I think it was just part of the journey. Um, for me, I, the way that I try and live my life is um, looking for kind of the signs or the open doors or the open windows, so to speak, and getting a feel for potentials and possibilities and stepping into those and seeing if fruit comes out of it. And if it does, all right, keep going down that direction. So, and that was kind of a vague answer, but um, so being a designer, I, uh, several years ago, was connected with a guy who was in pretty big in, in the Christian publishing world. And there was new technology coming out from Ingram, which is a major distribution company. And they were launching a print on demand service for books. And so he was in a position to help authors self-publish through this platform. And so he knew I was a designer. He asked if I wanted to design a book a cover um, for him. So the first book they were going to be launching was from a guy who had been, uh, previously published with larger publishers. Um, and he was coming out with a book called the last TV evangelist. So his name's Phil cook. And so they asked me to do the cover. I did the cover. It was so fun because I, I love books. I love reading, but I had never designed anything for books before. Um, and you're probably looking it up right now. Aren't you? I am. I am. <laughs> yeah. So, so I my eyes dark down. Yeah, I did. <laughs> So I designed the cover and then he asked me to do the interior of the book, which I'd never done before. And I was like, oh yeah, sure. I can do that. And that was just a whole nother beast. Um, you know, doing a layout for, you know, 200 plus page book, um, definitely learned a lot through the process, but by the end of it, I enjoyed it. And so he continued to refer me to other authors that needed books. Yeah. And so got very familiar with book layout process with, with the print on demand process and um, simultaneously, 
this is kind of when my deconstruction had started. And so I was running in some circles where there were guys who were self-published who had great content, but because they were self-publishing, they weren't designers. The package didn't quite match the value of the content. And that just broke my heart because people do judge a book by its cover. Mm -hmm. And so wanting, you know, figuring out, is there a way I can help these guys? Um, obviously use my gifts and talents, partner with content that I believe in that I think is legitimate and, you know, hopefully elevate, elevated status. So, um, that's when the idea for choir kind of was born was if we started a boutique publishing company, um, that was really part ministry, part creative outlet. Um, you know, we could partner with authors, um, and also in a way where we can ensure that the majority of the royalty goes back to the author, because I've heard too many horror stories of, you know, authors that get pennies on a book sale and are still expected to do all the marketing. And yet mm. the publishers are, you know, taking all the, the money from that. So it was kind of the genesis of choir, um, was strictly book publishing. And, um, as, as we continue to get books coming in, you know, when we first started, I thought, you know, we would be inundated with books from people who are like, Oh, this was from my cousin's grandma's grocer's second nephew, you know, take a read and it would be terrible. But I was, I was frankly shocked uh, that from the get-go, we were getting really quality manuscripts and books from people who were just hungry to get their work out there, but didn't want to go it alone. Mm-hmm. And so we, we found ourselves in this in-between space between traditional publishing and self-publishing. And so we just started kind of owning that. And uh, the books that started coming our way tended to be on the fringes of Christianity where, you know, they weren't outside the bounds of orthodoxy, but they they probably weren't books you would find in life way. <laughs> and so especially not now, especially not now. Yeah. So we really started kind of cultivating this, um, I don't know, I guess this genre of books for people who are either just beginning or in the midst of deconstruction where they're willing to ask questions, um, where the books represent conversations that are worth having, regardless of whether you agree or disagree with the, you know, the premise. And so we just started attracting more and more folks like that. And so as that was developing, um, then realizing that, you know, there's other avenues of producing content besides just books. And if we could create sort of this ecosystem where content is coming in different formats and different media, different ways that people consume it, then we could really transition. And this is my vision for, for this year's transitioning choir from a publishing company strictly to more of a media company. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we're launching more podcasts. Um, we're actually finishing negotiations right now with a university to begin offering online courses um, that will be uh, produced for our authors. And so that'll be another way that people can consume the content and take deeper dives into some of the you know, theological and, and uh, other types of topics that our books cover. Eventually I'd love for us to get into like film, short films and mm. music uh, in some degree and figure out a way where it makes sense, where we can operate in, again, that in-between space, similar like we do with publishing. Am I safe in assuming you read every manuscript that comes or you're like, no, nah, looks good. And then, but I feel like to, I mean, as, as also going to school for graphics, cause I'm like, you can't make something if you don't know what it's about, like at a, totally. at a deep level. So do you read everything or are you just letting the author tell you what you're supposed to think of it? So that's a great question. I, so everything that we publish, I have read. Mm-hmm. Um, so typically a manuscript will come in and I have a handful of people. Some of them are, are authors actually that I'll send the manuscript to just for like an initial read. 
Um, so people whose taste I trust, who I feel really understand our vision and what we're after, just to kind of get a, a pre-check. Um, and then if they give the thumbs up or they say, yeah, this looks good, then I'll, I'll take the time to read through it um, and make sure it, it fits. So it, it kind of helps to have that pre-screening process. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, because I do want to read each book, it definitely creates a lag time in our review process. So, um, you know, for authors out there who submit to us, they just have to be okay with waiting a month or two mm-hmm. before they hear back. Cause, and I mean, we're, we're pretty backlogged right now, which is exciting. It's a good problem to have, mm-hmm. but I think it just shows the need for, um, people who want to get their message and their content out there and kind of don't feel like they have very many options. And so, um, they reach out to us and want to partner with us. And it's, it's on one hand daunting. And on the other hand, it's very, um, humbling, uh, too, just to, to see that people are willing to trust their, their baby with Mm -hmm. us, you know, to take it to the finish line. Glad that you said yes. My fear was that you were going to say no, which meant (laughs) I had very few options of where to steer this episode. And Ah. so there was a, my, my wife will tell you that I ask a lot of, and so will my boss. Like I very rarely ask a question that I don't know the answer to, although that was one of them because I like to, I run a bank. So I like to control all totally. of the pieces on the board. Whether or not I'm good at it, I don't know, but I'd like to do it. So if you were to pick maybe two or three books, which I know isn't fair, so I'm not going to ask you what your favorite book is, because if you're like okay. me, I read enough books that that I'm like, oh, this is my favorite, or this is my favorite. Like, yeah. you know, like if I had to, well, I wrote a few blog posts on, on the website, if anyone listening wants to read them, of the ones that were most impactful. But even then, it wasn't, the book wasn't the reason it was the most impactful. It was the way that the book made me come to terms with something I was dealing with as my sweater eroded into a smaller sweater. Um, (laughs) You're not at bikini status yet? (laughs) uh, Well, I don't have the bikini body, so um, I don't know that I'll ever be it. So you only have one kid, but when you have three, uh, the Ah. bikini status goes away for, oh, somebody has an extracurricular activity every single Uh, night. And then maybe because you're going on vacation next week, we're also going to pick up an extra night to make up for something that we can't do next week. Oh, boy. Yeah, those are real. Yeah, they're fun <laughs> weeks. Um, and, and then on top of that, we do, we do this. But I'm curious, so if you were to take two or three books that you're like, you know, as I look back over these last few years, um, how long has Choir been been publishing? Is it uh, Since 2015. Yeah, so you go back over the last four years now, three yep. years, four yep. years. What are two or three books that you're like, this book impacted the way that I see God, and here's wow. why. Like, if you go, you scroll back through, you're like, yeah, after I read this manuscript, like, I, I'm, I'm a different human being now because yeah, of this yeah. work. But I, I love that you asked that question because honestly, that's the feeling that I want to have after each manuscript we read. Um, for me personally, I feel like if if a book is not either you know challenging um, the status quo in some respect or pushing you outside your comfort zone, what's the point of reading it? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so that's that's the feeling I'm kind of chasing, so to speak, uh, after reading each manuscript. And so definitely the the first one that did that for me. Um, was Jamal's book, Free to Love. Um, and that one 
brought a, a ton of controversy kind of right out the gate, which was interesting because it's technically the second book that we published. And so it was, it was, it was a gamble um, that early on, but for those that have read it, um, I feel like for me, what it did was it expanded my understanding of what it means to love one another. And uh, it really opened my eyes to a God who is really seeking for his children to live in oneness and in a way where um, we're not uh, competing in hierarchy, um, but we're really seeking the best for one another as brothers and sisters. And so I think that just kind of solidified that, that view for me. Um, and it, it had some ramifications even for how uh, my wife and I dated and, and eventually got married and how we viewed our relationship, which for us has been really, really healthy and helpful. But I think it really gave us some perspective and context to make sure that we didn't turn our marriage into an idol like we've seen, you know, other other people do around us. So mm-hmm. how, um, that one, I f- how so? Like if you were to, I'll use a fancy word. So what would be some of the yeah. things that you, you know, the orthopraxy of of that yeah. book? Like what what are a couple things that you're like, yeah, here's what we got to do. Well, I'd say the first thing that comes to mind is. So in one respect, I think there's this tendency, especially with conservative Christian couples, is once they get married, they'll isolate from community. Um, mm. And it becomes just very, you know, very us, very family protected is who we are. And from the get-go, we wanted to make sure that our relationship was one where we actually welcomed community and we're inviting people into our relationship, not in an open relationship, you know, sexual kind of way. But mm-hmm. we wanted to just be very transparent and um, and live in such a way where just because we were married didn't mean that we were going to like peace out and go do our own thing. Um, so that's one respect. And another is um, just kind of the way that we continue to trust one another in relationships. Um, we are personally, we are okay with cross-gender relationships. Um, and so there's this practice that we had started uh, for Valentine's day where neither of us were big fans of Valentine's day. Um and so you don't like chocolate. He, well, <laughs> I love chocolate, but I don't, I don't want to wait one day. A year. Uh, so Valentine's day was coming up the, the first year we were married and we kind of talked about it and we're like, you know what? We, we don't really need to have this day to celebrate each other. What if each of us takes out one of our single friends who is of the opposite sex and just like treat them and spoil them and make them feel loved and appreciated that day. Hmm. And so my wife took out one of my guy friends. I took out one of her girlfriends and it was just awesome because we planned this special date around them and their interests and what they loved. And it was just, it was just such an awesome time. And to be able to have the freedom to trust um, who you're in relationship with and that they trust you. Um, obviously we, we still have healthy boundaries and, you know, certain things, parameters that we maintain um, cause we're not, ignorant of, (laughs) of, you know, what can happen. Um, but I think we, we don't want to live in fear and we don't want to allow our lives to be dictated by, by fear. And so we'd rather extend grace and love and just kind of live in a way that is pretty cross-cultural. Um, so that folks can see that if we're claiming the name of Christ, that there is something substantially different about how we are in relationship with other people. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's good. I cut you off there. You were going to the next book. Oh, uh, next book. Let's see. Uh, top of mind. I would say I'm trying to remember like the chronological order, but I know Keith's first book, Jesus Untangled. Mm-hmm. Um, that one really rocked me because 
uh, I was, I, it was something I hadn't really considered before. So it kind of came out of left field, but it really challenged my view and understanding of politics. Um, and specifically just if we are serious about the kingdom of God and what Jesus came to fulfill and how he empowered us, then how is that being applied in our daily lives? And that's, that's where I feel like the orthopraxy comes in is regardless of whether you agree or disagree with Keith's ultimate um, premise and his conclusion, the fact remains that, you know, we are in this world and we're supposed to be operating out of a different mindset um, than, you know, buying into the culture wars. Yeah. So that one, that one was the one that, that rocked me as well. And then Mark Karras's book, uh, Divine Echoes, uh, mm-hmm. hands down best book on prayer I've ever read. Um, for me, prayer was always kind of, kind of weird um, because it, it's definitely not, or at least wasn't logical um, the way we approached it. And, you know, you, you just kind of write it off as like, well, that's just one of those things that's mysterious and, you know, God's ways are higher than our ways. But for Mark to really come at it from a way that was not only faithful to the biblical text, but faithful to human logic and faithful to God's self-emptying canonic love. I just feel like he, he took all these disparate threads and really, you know, put it together in a way where it was very tangible, very practical, and in a way that I feel gave honor to God and honor to us as agents of free will. So it was, it was a phenomenal book. Yeah. Yeah. No, I would agree on Mark's and I will say, um, you know, I spoke with Keith. I think Keith was like one of my, I don't know, second or third times doing this. Um, Mm. honestly, I'd like a do over on that episode, but I don't know that I'd ask the questions. (laughs) I don't know that I'd ask different questions because I struggle with, with politics, with, Mm. um, some days I'm like, yeah, I'm right there with you, Keith. And other days I'm like, I have to say something like, yeah, yeah. I, this needs, somebody needs to say something like, I can't just sit here and watch everybody argue. Somebody needs to be the adult here (laughs) because none of y'all are doing it. Um, but I feel the tension. I totally feel the tension, but I get so much flack still every week from even having Keith on the show to talk about politics. Wow. On a show called, can I say this at church, which is really oxymoronic. I'm like, you, you do realize the, the whole premise here, but it's yeah. fine. Um, but Mark's book, so it changed me deeply as well. And I've loved getting to know Mark, but uh, my wife and I lead, uh, lead a Sunday school every other month for the youth okay. at, our, at our church. And a few months ago, like I was like, we're just going to pray differently. I'll do it. I don't want any of y'all to pray because we're not praying about cats or your <laughs> test or your friend. Yeah. Or, I don't want to do any of that. So I tried to pray you know, in a conspiring way and in the best way that I could off the top of my head. And at the end, yeah. like a lot of the kids were like, I've never heard a prayer like that. And I was like, well, we're going to do it again next week. I'm still uh, awful at it. Um, <laughs> but I will say every time I do it, I'm like, this, this feels good. Like this is the yeah. way that I should have always been praying. Um, totally, totally. Yeah. His book and uh, Luigi Gioia's, uh, who's a, um, he's, he had, uh, he's at Cambridge, but he's, okay. And he's Italian. It's like I'm, I'm sure I said his name wrong. Those two books, Mark's and his book, his, mm-hmm. his is called um, "Touched by God." Okay, fantastic. But I like Luigi's because he gives me theologians that I've never heard from, from like uh, that yeah. portion of the world. That I'm like, oh, this is brilliant. Yeah, this is brilliant. What is the future then? So, if you're going to turn into the Vox Media, two questions <laughs> about choir. So, do you want to remain on the fringes? Or do you plan to do to allow people to do mainstream stuff as well? So if you had someone like a, I don't know, 
I can't think of someone off the top of my head. Like someone from InterVarsity. That they're like, hey, mm-hmm. I'd like to put this out. I'm not trying to rock any boats. It's just like a John Walton. Would you, okay. if, is that too centralized? Like, are you trying to stay on the fringe? Yeah. I, so I will say at this point, we're trying to stay on the fringe, but it's because we have an understanding and a vision that the fringe is actually where the church is headed. Hmm. Um, so I think that we're beginning to see this massive shift culturally, theologically, where kind of the voices that have been marginalized and silenced in the past, um, especially thanks to, you know, internet proliferation of content, democratization of, you know, distribution platforms that we're really starting to see a shift, fundamental shift in Christianity. And so what I'm trying to do and, you know, history will say if it's successful or not is, you know, I'm trying to throw where I see the the receiver running mm-hmm. rather than, you know, where they're at at the moment. So um, hopefully, you know, taking a correct pulse on, on what's going on in Christianity, seeing the way that it's going and hoping that we can be at the forefront of kind of this next movement, this next wave. Yeah. So drill there. Um, I'd like to drill Mm -hmm. there. What is that forefront? Like if I'm, so my son is about to enter next year, he'll enter the fifth grade. And so he's getting to an age that all of those issues like Mm -hmm. will become real, like less Nerf guns and real issues. Yeah. Uh, Even though at a, at a very low level, but there's still, I mean, I I can remember being in school and just from hearing him and his friends talk, like, Mm -hmm it's about to get real, which is terrifying. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's very yeah. terrifying. Um, but I mean, within the next few years, you know, sexuality is going to be a thing. Mm-hmm. Gender is going to be a thing. Uh, everything will become more of a thing. So if we're going to drill there, what do you see the big shifts are going to be? Like, what will be the things that either break apart everything that we know of the church mm-hmm. into whatever's left, whatever rubble's left, or what will be the thing that we were able to rally behind and move forward over the next few years? Great question. So I think um, this is something Jamal actually referenced in one of the early Heretic Happy Hour episodes, but he talks about kind of the four pillars of modern evangelicalism. And these are the things that I feel like are going to be eroding in a major way. Um, One is the inerrancy and infallibility of scripture. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's going to be a shift in terms of how we, how we view the Bible, not in a way that denigrates it or, you know, relegates it to just uh, an unnecessary relic from the past, but in a way that allows us to engage the text more faithfully. Um, so I think that's that's one major shift that's coming. Um, another one he talks about is our understanding of hell. That one's fascinating to me because it's my personal view that it's our understanding of hell that allows um, the heresy hunting and charges of false teaching and this like very emotional worked up response to theological differences Mm -hmm. because if we had a vision of hell or an understanding of hell that that was different from eternal conscious torment i think it would take a lot of the sting and the bite out of those theological disagreements because we wouldn't be battling over you know eternal security Mm -hmm. but i think i think it would help to allow us to have conversations in a way that was healthier so hell i think is one Um, another one is just basically the you know Calvinist view of salvation. And then uh, really, I think the fourth pillar is, is the way that people understand and interact with church. Um, and I mean, we've been seeing numbers, Barna has been documenting it, you know, millions of people leaving the church, traditional church every year, not because they're losing their faith, but because they're, they're trying to survive in their faith mm-hmm. kind of outside the four walls. So unfortunately, I think the American church has created this 
institutional empire that for the most part is operating outside of of what Christianity is called to be. And so I think as those things begin to erode, um, we're going to start seeing, um, I think, more honest conversations. Uh, I'm hoping to see a shift of Christianity away from a shame culture, away from um, you know law-based, um, shifting more towards a true understanding of grace, of a true understanding that you know, if we really say God is in control, whatever your view mm-hmm. of that is, do we give people the grace to be where they're at in their journey? Um, or do we feel the need to constantly have to correct and align someone with, you know, our theological viewpoints? Uh, I think the LGBTQ issue is, is huge. Um, you know, especially with what happened recently in, in yeah. the church, but I, I think it's just a matter of time. And I think the more that we align with understanding the essence of love, uh, and especially in the way that Jesus embodied it and and displayed it, I think that's really the way that the church um, is going to be shifting and moving, especially as the new generation comes up. Our ideals, well, I can't even say our because I'm not even part of the new generation, but <laughs> their <laughs> sure ideals. You sure you are. Yeah, their ideals are just more in line with an inclusive uh, understanding of of what love looks like and acceptance and, and trust. Yeah. So yeah. One of my, one of my favorite bands is thrice. I don't know if you got a chance to hear their new album, but there's songs on there that lyrically are just phenomenal. And I feel like they really capture the heartbeat of where, where the shift is headed. Um, so if you get a chance, check out their album, it's called palms. I will. I haven't listened to that. Uh, the album lately that's been on repeat for me. So there's two, and I want to come back to the pillars because I agree with those pillars, but I'm, I have a question for you on one of them. But the yeah. two, uh, so Heath McNeese has a new album, and I don't know if you know Heath McNeese, but mm-hmm. the man is mm, the man is money. Okay. So what's the name of his newest album? Oh, I gotta have to pull it up. But he has a brand new album. Like it was out like two weeks ago. For for a few for a few days there, like he was sandwiched between Dr. Dre and Tupac on like- the, No way. Yeah, like he's like, hey, somebody, <laughs> did anybody get a screenshot? But it was for a few days. Yeah. So Heath's music, and for those that have listened to the show, there was a bunch of music on the first four or five episodes in a row, and that's all Heath. Okay. That's all his music for people that want to go way back in the library. But he he just does some amazing things. So he, he he's able to sing in like a John Mayerish way, and then also mm-hmm. just freestyle- bars nice. for days yeah. and he's good and then the other one is uh will matthews uh, william matthews cosmos i don't know if you've listened to that at all no. yeah so you referenced hell and that's one of my favorite topics but i don't talk about it all that often <laughs> so you obviously okay. don't believe in eternal conscious torment what do you right. believe yeah so uh my first shift away from eternal conscious torment was actually thanks to one of our, our choir authors. And he's actually one of the people who helped us get the company started because he allowed us to transfer his entire collection over to choir. And his name is John Zenz. So he's written a lot in the like organic church circles, but um, he was the initial person for me that shifted my thinking from eternal conscious torment to an annihilationist view. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was kind of like, again, that, that first thread when it comes to hell, realizing like, Oh wait, you know, you're not going to burn forever. And it's a temporal thing that makes more sense. You know, it, it fits more with the nature of living God. So that, that was the first shift there. And then um, 
just reading different people. I, I read uh, some and listened to the videos from John Crowder, who is someone who has an inclusionist view of salvation. Um, and then obviously digging into Matthew DeStefano, read his book, All Set Free, before he came over to choir. And, you know, he's arguing for a universalist view um, and then reading a few more books on universalism. So I would say that I, I am happy in the universalist camp. Um, I think there is no good uh, scriptural support for eternal conscious torment. So I'm not willing to concede that one. Well, I, I will say, I will say uh, <laughs> annihilationism is still possible. Like mm-hmm. I, I think there you could make a case for that. But personally, uh, I feel the weight of evidence lies more with uh, the patristic universalism, the classic universalism. Hmm. So it's actually something we're really excited about uh, for an upcoming book is Keith Giles is going to be writing kind of his treatise on uh, patristic universalism. Hmm. So, yeah, excited to put that out there. That'll be fun. I'll read it. Um, Good. Yeah, I'm right there <laughs> with you, although I still lean annihilationist. So those are the first two episodes I did. And so I went ahead and did, well, at the time it was George McDonald, but he's Robin mm-hmm. Perry now. And then I did John right. Stackhouse. I was like, let's just go both ways. Okay. Um, and I'm still not quite, it's like I'm not ready again yet to actually like <laughs> tackle it for an hour. Cause I'm just not, I'm just not, I'm just yeah. not there. Um, yeah. I'm just not comfortable. And I try to be as <laughs> genuine and possible in this. I'm just not comfortable. So if, if the church switches and uh, assuming like any structure, there's four pillars, there's four corners, mm-hmm. there's four, well, I guess there's some eight, whatever, doesn't matter. Four, four, <laughs> four pillars out of any structure is, is, yeah. is it's going to, the integrity is gone. And yeah. so when that institution collapses, cause I feel like a lot of people talk about the collapse of the church, myself included. Um, and then we don't realize that the church does like a lot of good things. Like it, totally. we do a lot of crappy things. We do a lot mm-hmm. of good things too. Um, yeah. And you need both subsets of the church. You, know, you need that non-denominational, very loosely formed uh, to allow people a place like myself or mm-hmm. other people um, to a safe place to go and a safe place to feel included and to worship. But you also like yeah. that church is never going to send people to Haiti to help after an earthquake. Like they mm-hmm. just don't have the structure. And so yeah, yeah. if the pillars are gone, what happens with all that institutionalized resources? Mm-hmm. Like what do we do with those or how do we redirect the way that you and I will have to like sacrifice personally yeah, to replace yeah. that? Cause that work still has to get done and I don't trust totally. the government to do it nor do I really want them to. Um, right, right. You know what I mean? Like I don't know how to replace one institution with another without it being mm-hmm. equally unhealthy. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And that, I think that's really a difficult question to answer just in terms of, you know, at what point does a movement become a self-serving institution? Mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, the question for thousands of years, because it's just the pattern that we see over and over. And it's probably part of our human propensity. Mm-hmm. But I think, I mean, the way I, I think it could work is realizing that if church as a capital C, as an institution, um, did not function as it did today, that we would still have things like nonprofits, that we would still have things like businesses and organizations that you know people of faith would create and raise up, but it is fundamentally different from an understanding of church. Um, so I think that you know there's there's great organizations out there that are doing phenomenal you know humanitarian aid type work. Um, I ha- personally have a hard time with the ones where it's a bait and switch where, you know, we'll, we'll give you some humanitarian aid, but first you have to listen to the sermon. Um, I think, unfortunately, that's one of the like, 
the bad elements of when church, you know, blends into this. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think that, you know, even for atheists and people who don't have faith, there are organizations and humanitarian aid that happens. So I think just because the church as an institution possibly could cease to exist, I don't think that the, the service uh, would Um, obviously we'd have to get more creative and we would have to empower people in new ways, but I don't see them as, um, as necessarily being the end of, of both, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So then, um, so then that would be a, uh, what's the thing I'm, what's the word I'm looking for? That would be an entire shift of the way that we view quote unquote, big C church. And so then Mm -hmm. the last question I'd like to ask you is what is the church? Like if we big Mm -hmm. C, little C, I don't really care. Like in that, in that structure, like what is the church? Is it just me and you right now? Cause we're too gathered. Is it something entirely different? Like what is it? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I like to have a a view of the church kind of similar to the, to the view of Christ where there's this cosmic view of it, um, where the church is everyone who's been awakened to the reality of Christ, I would like to say, um, and then there's kind of a, a local expression, which, I mean, I don't know if this is treading into heresy, but, you know, if you look at Jesus I and don't Christ. Have, I don't have that button like you do. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Christ is is this cosmic, especially in, was it Colossians? I mean, Paul gives this like mind-blowing, huge universal view of Christ. But then you also have the expression of Christ, Jesus, who was the Christ on earth at a particular location in time. And so I think church is kind of the same way where there's this, this cosmic ethereal um, uh, corporate collective of people who are interconnected on this like spiritual network. But at the same time, there's a local embodiment and expression of it. And I think anytime where you have people gathered who are awakened to their true identity and to the fact that, that there's a kingdom at hand and there is a king that we serve. Um, then I think church is, is what's happening in that moment. I don't think it has to be a 501 C three. I don't think it, there has to be a sermon and communion for it to be official. Um, you know, I think if, if there's an intentional gathering of people who are about kingdom business, however you define that for me, I think that is a, a view of a local expression of church. Yeah. Yeah. And the question then there is what role do pastors serve in that? Um, yeah. But I promised you an hour and we're coming up on four minutes. So, <laughs> Well, I'll give a quick answer if that sure, helps. Sure. So yeah, I, I do believe pastors are vital. I will say that um, I think our what we've done with the text is we've read our modern definitions back into the original language. Mm-hmm. So for instance, uh, we see elders as a role, as a title, um, when in reality the text uses elder in the same way, it would just be like a, an older person. So if you think of like a family structure, you know, there's a, an uncle or a father or someone who's been around the block, so to speak. It's not an official title that you get voted into or something like that. Same with pastor. Pastor is more of a function. So a person who pastors, a person who shepherds, who guides, who leads, not necessarily, you know, a... Um, a job description you can find on monster.com type of thing. <laughs> so that's a, that's a real quick overview. But again, um, if you dig into, you know, Frank's book, it'll, he'll explain it more. Yeah, no, I will. I'm going to buy that. I, I like, I like that concept, but, um, I can't, we don't have enough time to go there. So yeah. plug what you need to Ralph. So how do people get a hold of you? Definitely. How do they get a hold of the book? Some of the best books I read last year, choir books. So uh, thank you. Yeah. Well, they're, what's the word I'm looking for? 
you can tell that they're not muzzled, if that makes sense. Like mm. the authors can say what they intended to say. And there yep. wasn't an editor that went back and said, yeah, no, we can't do that. Cause I need this on the end cap <laughs> at target. Like I need this right, in right. target. So you can't say that cause it's just not going to happen. So totally. where do people go to either, you know, get in contact with you or mm -hmm. possibly to submit a text if they want to, or, you know, where do they go? Perfect. Uh, real quick before I answer that. So I, I love the fact that you picked up on that, that they're unmuzzled. And I, I like how you said that. Um, and just so everyone knows, just because we publish a book doesn't mean we we agree 100% with it. So <laughs> we like to be of the same mindset that it's like, well, this is a conversation worth having. Even if we're not fully behind it, we think it deserves to be in the marketplace. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, uh, so choir.com is the best place to check us out. And it is spelled weird, Q-U-O-I-R. Com. Um, that's where you can find out about the Heretic Happy Hour podcast, the Bookish podcast, um, and all the books that we're coming out with. Um, sign up on our mailing list so we can send you updates on what's coming out. Um, but that would be the best way. We also have a Facebook page. Um, I think we're on Twitter and Instagram, but really the website is, is the way to go. Well, I'll have links to all those in the show notes for those listening. And thanks again for coming on, Ralph. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Times lost in tension between strife and rest, seeking truth, tossing, turning dreams in my bed, trusting where I'm led, yet worried, sick of what's ahead. Joy is I'm truly thankful that people like Ralph exist, that they're pushing the envelope in a way that is nuanced, in a way that, as I guess he liked the, the phrase, as a way that unmuzzles people, that gives people an avenue and event to say what they need to say in an open form and to disagree and to disagree with love, to not argue, to not bicker, to lead a life like he and his wife talked about, of just loving our neighbor, loving our friends, being like Jesus. That's beautiful. And I wish, hope, that that's something that we can all do. If you like what you're hearing on any of these episodes, gosh, we've been doing this now for over a year, and I love doing it. And one of the ways that I'm able to do that is the continued support on Patreon. In whatever way that you're able, for as long as you're able, I would love to count you among those there that help to make this show what it is, that really help support financially all of the back-end framework of doing something like this because it does have costs and uh, you'll find the link to that at just can i say this at church.com and up in the top right you'll see a button that says i think support the show so just click on that you'll have a couple options there's a paypal option there that nobody's ever used and so i think eventually i'll just delete that I'm not a fan of paypal but I know some people like a way to do it in a non-ongoing way. Another way that you can support the show is just rate and review it on iTunes. Really, I like when you write those reviews because I like reading them. I like sharing them with friends and being like, hey, look at what this person said. Whether or not the rating or review is good or bad, I just really appreciate honesty and intentionality. I find it refreshing. So do that. I'm so thankful for the music of Hannah Barnett. 
her music popped up randomly on a Spotify. Like, we found somebody you might like playlist, and they were right. That song, Nails, stopped me in my tracks. Like, I don't remember what I was doing, but I remember stopping and just sitting there. And then I sent it to a few friends and was like, man, this is really good. And hey, it was my honor to feature her on today's episode. Uh, support her music, and you'll find links to the music used in today's episode on the Spotify playlist that you'll find in the show notes. If you just click down at the bottom there, or you'll find a link to that at the website at canisaythisatchurch.com. Thankful for you all. I will talk with you next week. Be blessed, everyone.